right, now Easter is one of my favorite Sundays of the year because it's interactive, okay? You all have a job to do, and you have to interact with me. No, have to, because I would typically like you to interact with me every Sunday. I'd enjoy a few amens, a banner once in a while, okay? But none of that so far. Um, but you're forced to on Easter, okay? And so this is how it goes. I say, He is risen, and you say... He is risen indeed, okay? So anytime that comes up, you know your response. That is indeed the news of the day. That is why we're gathered. That is what we are going to talk about this morning. Um, Easter is the reason that there are Christians. Um, It's the reason that um, there are communities of faith and people who um, find all of their life in Christ and, and and sacrifice their lives for Christ. None of that would have happened without the resurrection. Um, if you've been going through Holy Week on your own or with us, you remember in Good Friday we, we watched and meditated on Jesus' death. And in the moment, His death was the death of everything. It was the death of a movement. It was the death of the promises. It was the death of the one that they thought would come and fix everything. And then you have a long Saturday where people are fearful. The disciples are locked up, figuring out a way to protect their own skin. And then Sunday morning comes. And Jesus, once dead, is alive. He's passed through death. And it triggers into action a sequence of events that will come to change the world and continue to change the world. And if we let it, change ourselves in the process. Jesus was a resurrection person. And you and I are called to be resurrection people. Now, this morning, um, we're going to be in Matthew 28. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can flip there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. We'll be in Matthew 28. For those of you who are type A personalities, I've got three main points, okay? Or for those of you who just like brunch and you're wondering when's this going to end, we've got three points coming your way, okay? Um... I want us to read Matthew's version of the resurrection story found in in Matthew 28. So we'll read through the whole chapter um, and uh, then go from there. As we read through it, fairly short chapter, again, try to to read it and hear it for the first time. Um, That's why we we practice Holy Week. That's why Christians practice Holy Week. Um, So that stories like the resurrection, truths like the resurrection... Realities like the resurrection aren't just another thing that we've heard previously. We've walked through Thursday, Monday, Thursday. We've walked through Good Friday. We've walked through Saturday. And now with new eyes, we get to experience Easter morning, Sunday morning. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now, if you do not know, this is the um, most repeated command in the entire Bible. Um, when, when you look for imperatives in the Bible, things God commands us to do, by far, there's one that stands out, almost two to one to any other command, and it's, don't be scared. I know you live in a scary world. I know life <laughs> can be scary. Don't be scared. Especially don't be scared of me. He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And behold, he is risen. He's not here. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. We get it for a second time. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they'll see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests about all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples had gone to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had directed them to go to. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go now, therefore, and baptize as you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. Jesus is a resurrection person, and we're called to be resurrection people. The first thing I want to call your attention to this morning, um, because I think it's easy to miss, and it's a big part of understanding the resurrection, um, is the fact that um, when we say resurrection and when you see what's going on here in the text, we're not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about a very, very sick or injured man kind of making his way back to life. Um, we're talking about someone who was dead and then is alive, as alive as he ever was beforehand. Someone who, who actually is alive in a new way. They've passed over death. It has no touch on them. Now they're incorruptible. Now they will live eternal. They can't be touched by evil and sin and death. And this is the life that Jesus has. And sometimes, because of the way that the Gospels present Jesus, 
if you'll notice, all four of the Gospels, when they talk about the resurrection, seem to run out of language. They seem to not really know how to talk about it. It's a very different language than each of the um, rest of the texts earlier in all four of the Gospels. It's because no one has ever seen someone who's resurrected, right? And so we, we know things like Jesus could walk through walls, and he could appear and disappear, and he could um, disguise himself. Uh, and so some of us think, or it might be easy to think, that, that Jesus rose again in spirit, or in illumination, his glory came forth. Um, but that's why there's an empty tomb, right? Because the body's not still there. The body's up. And that's why you have here in Matthew even, uh, if you'll, you'll notice, um, they say, um, when Jesus comes and greets them, he says, And behold, Jesus um, met them and said greetings, which seems like an understatement, okay? Um, but the disciples take it. And, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. I think of like a child who doesn't want you to leave the house um, or doesn't want to leave the playground and they just grab onto your feet, right? These are the disciples. But I want you to notice there were feet to grab while they worshipped him. And the other Gospels tell similar stories. Jesus actually has people touch him to prove that he's not a ghost. That this is the same matter that was there on the crux. It's been made new. It's been resurrected. Jesus eats fish. Things ghosts can't do. So, so while Jesus' body might be a little bit different than our current bodies, the scriptures would lead us to believe very clearly that Jesus has a physical body. And, and more specifically, Jesus resurrection meant that Jesus rose bodily, physically, from the dead. You see, he was fully bodily dead, and now on Easter Sunday, he's fully bodily alive. And he's a human being. And we, we have a tendency, I think, to imagine at, at some point that Jesus went back to kind of the spirit form that maybe he had before he was incarnate and became baby Jesus. Um, and, and that's kind of Jesus right now. He's, in this, he's a spiritual creature, spiritual being, and he's at the Father's right hand. Um, but if we were to believe the scriptures, um, we would be led to the conclusion that Jesus is actually alive right now as a human being who's been resurrected. Like not, not back then, but like at this second, and at this second, and at this second. Somewhere in the universe, not in our space, in God's space, heaven, the God's right hand, there is a living Jewish man who had done all of these things. This is why church gets off the track when it becomes a memorial service, like, like a time to remember someone who was martyred and who has inspired us. Church is actually a gathering where we come together to hear from the risen Christ, the one who's alive right now, the one who has a heartbeat, the one who has eyes watching out. 
It's good news for us. You know, sometimes maybe we wonder in the ascension, Jesus goes to heaven, he kind of slithers off his body, like a snake shedding its skin. But that's not what happens. Jesus, the man, walks into God's space, into heaven. And alive there, we're told he's doing all kinds of things for his people. He's interceding on our behalf. So he's praying for us. He's praying for his church. He's praying for his people. He knows the struggles that you're going through. He knows the sins that you're trying to conquer. He knows the relationships um, that have been difficult for you. And he's praying to the Father. And it's, it's a really good deal because he's kind of got the Father's ear. If there's anyone you want praying for you, it's Jesus. And the Gospels, he seemed like pretty good at, at prayer. Decent at least, right? I mean, what a blessing to know right now Jesus alive is interceding for us, praying for us. We're told also that he is ruling over the universe. He's still got this goal in mind. He still has a movement that's up and running. And as the risen Lord, he's directing his people. He's seeing what's happening. He's seeing where the church is. He's seeing the opportunities around them. And then through his spirit, he's leading his people where they're supposed to go. That's why Christians often have these experiences that they might call God encounters. It's kind of unexplainable. But somehow I ran across this person, and they were the exact person I needed at that time in my life. Almost as if someone was kind of directing and guiding things so that his people would be complete and full and faithful. So this living Jesus, we can't forget, is also the one who is crucified. There's a tendency um, for Christians to separate Jesus' death and resurrection from his previous life his previous ministry, announcements, teachings. And we kind of just focus on the death and resurrection and then go from there. Resurrected Christ, and then what does Paul say? What does Peter say? And we move on. If, if you're a regular at FCQ, you know that we're, we try to be gospel people. If we're going to talk about an issue, we, we see Jesus talk about this issue. Notice how many times in Matthew 28 it mentions Galilee. Verse 7. He says he's going there. He's going to Galilee ahead of you. You should go there. Verse 10. Go tell my brothers to get to Galilee. I'll meet with them there. And then verse 16. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain he had commanded them to. This is significant because Galilee is where Jesus spent most of his ministry. It's it's in northern Israel, um, a very rural area. And this is where Jesus, for for about three years probably, um, went around to little villages and preached and taught and cast out demons and healed people and forgave people of their sins and gathered a following. Galilee is a reference. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus goes back to Galilee. When he wants to meet with the disciples after he's resurrected. Because that's where it all began. 
up to this point, that's where it's all been. He just came down for Passover. When we, when we look at and think about the death and the resurrection of Christ, we've got to remember that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't start a new chapter completely. It's also a vindication of the chapter before. So, like, it's, it's astonishing to me because Jesus had some really specific teachings on a lot of stuff. And, and a lot of Christians I've encountered aren't aware of them or, like, argue against them. Like, if you were just to say that as your own, I can guarantee you a person has gone to church for 50 years would be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm like, well, you need to, that was Jesus, I'm sorry. <laughs> so he had, he had very specific things about how to use our money, which is very uncomfortable. He had very specific commands about how to relate to one another, and how many times we had to forgive each other. Very, very specific commands about what to do to someone who hits you, and who hates you, and who has made you his enemy. Commands on marriage. When Christ resurrects, this means we should go back to those teachings. On Good Friday and, and Saturday in the, the tomb, those meant nothing. They had died just like Jesus. But when he raises from the dead, it's a vindication of his earlier ministry. Jesus starts, and the kind of the theme of his ministry is that the kingdom of God is coming to earth. God's will is starting to happen on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes out and enacts that by healing people, forgiving people. And then he has these teachings. And the resurrection affirms that this is true. The kingdom instead of dying, it's back live. It's still on the move. That whole movement, it's still going on. Those teachings and prophecies and announcements, they weren't wrong. They didn't fail us just like Jesus failed us on the cross. They were instead actually truly the way to life, the way to close relationship with God the Father. And in the same vein, when we say that the risen Christ is the crucified Christ, you'll remember he still has his scars from his crucifixion and the hole in the side from where they pierced him. We also can't forget that the resurrected Christ is the one who predicted and lived a cruciform life, a life of self-sacrificial love. He doesn't switch personalities with the resurrection. And all of a sudden become a king who lords it over other people and, and rules by coercion. No, Jesus is a, a king who rules by serving. And by giving people time. He doesn't have a sword, he has a towel to wash your feet. The risen Christ is not an MMA fighter. He's the same one who died on that cross. His kingdom is a kingdom that comes through self-sacrificial love. And it's still on. The movement is still on. 
And because of that, the disciples are called to become resurrection people. People who, who place the resurrection at the center of their faith. And you see this in Matthew. He gives them commands. Go tell the brothers to meet me in Galilee. And then at the very end with the Great Commission, well-known passage, it starts with a, a, a statement, a truth. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, basically, I've won. Um, there's now a human being who gets to stand on top of death. And, and I'm not just still on top of death for me, but for all of my people. So you don't have to worry about death being taken care of for you at some point in the future. I already dealt with it. And I'm standing on top of sin. It's been crushed as well. So you, my people, don't have to worry about what your sin is going to lead to, what kind of punishment might come about. You have forgiveness and freedom and the ability to be transformed. And yet they're given this vocation. So their experience, the disciples' experience, and the eyewitnesses here of the resurrection is varied. It's a mixture of joy, astonishment, worship, and fear. It's a scary thing. Up to this point, death had not been defeated. And now it has, and, and that changes everything. And so when we go to the mountain with the Great Commission, I love, in fact, that, that there, some of them are worshiping him, and then some doubted. Like, there's got to be a guy there who's like, I don't know about the resurrection thing. I have a cousin who does things like this, and so let's wait it out. They're doubting on the mountain in front of Jesus. He says, no, no, no. I've won. And because I've won, go. Let's go make disciples. Go make more people who follow after me and baptize them and teach them to observe the commandments that I've given throughout my life. And I'll be with you always into the promise, to the end of the age. I was asked recently why Christians feel the need so much to include hell when they're trying to evangelize people. Um, whether that was necessary and what, what's their thought process behind that. And I said, well, I, I don't think it's necessary because in all of the sermons in Acts when disciples are actually converting the largest empire in the world, not one of them mentions hell. And somehow they're able to get followers. And I, I came to the conclusion that it was probably this that's driving them. They've reduced the life Jesus has to offer to something you'll experience after you die. Which could tragically be any day, most likely 20, 30, 50 years. I'm not like saying for specific people. Um, <laughs> and so they, they, they use hell, right? They use some fear. It's some urgency, right? To an otherwise not very urgent invitation. And I said, what it comes down to really is that 
those Christians don't have a full, robust view of the Christian life in the present. As a Christian, I don't believe that all I'm doing is waiting until something to happen after I die. I believe that that new creation has already started in the midst of history, 2,000 years ago. I believe that something transformed the world, shook it, broke it down, and rebuilt it, and the world will never be the same. And I believe because of that, I can have now full life, union with Christ, relationship with the Father. Not perfection and no suffering or anything like that, but a real life. A, a, a real life versus a shallow life that I once lived. You see, there's kind of two ways of living now. Before, there was just sin and death and evil in the world. And everyone was enslaved by it, surrounded by it, and there really wasn't much to do about it. But now, after Jesus' resurrection, the offer is on the table to come and join a new kind of living. One where our, our identity is based with Christ and His resurrection. When we're given the Spirit to bring God's presence close to us in a way that's never been experienced. To give us gifts. To assure us of our forgiveness. To help us be obedient and faithful. So when, when I go to a neighbor and I build a relationship with them, and I ask that I can pray for them, and, and I'm starting to think about, you know, maybe it's time to talk about Jesus. I'm a pastor. Got to do it eventually. I, I do so not because I'm trying to get them to just be able to take the right fork in the road after they die. I do it because every day that they're not living in Christ is a wasted day. It's a day touched and enslaved by sin and pain, death and evil, when they could be experiencing the life of Christ. It's because we've reduced Christianity to something after we die and have forgotten about the blessings that are here now that we have less urgency maybe about going out and telling, making disciples. These disciples, though, when they get the call... They go out, and they transform the world. I mean, they, they turn it upside down, one of the kings in the book of Acts says. Are you these uneducated fishermen who have turned Rome upside down? They're not sure how to answer. Which one is not going to get us beaten? That's the answer I'll go with. And because Jesus is a resurrection person... All authority has been given to him. You and I are called to be resurrection people. To live out this new identity. Where we have forgiveness of our sins. Because we've seen them defeated on the cross. We've seen our sins nailed to the cross with Jesus. That's what he was doing. And we, we've seen death be destroyed. And beaten. I mean, can you imagine 
what a person who really doesn't fear death can do? If the resurrection means anything, it means that Christians are people who can't be forced to do something because of the threat of death. And don't avoid certain things because of the threat of death. Now the closest we have to this right now, unfortunately, are the radical terrorists who have and continue to terrorize people, kill people, brutally, ruthlessly. Christians are called to be like the opposite of terrorists. To have that same kind of freedom, right? Kill me, doesn't matter. But instead of like bombing places or killing people, we're like bombing them with love. We're bombing them with surface service, with blessings, with news about who Jesus is. And there's not a place in the world, there's not a situation that can really actually scare us if we, we really have focused in on the resurrection. This is, I think, the key to the central faith. Like I said, there'd be no Christian faith without the resurrection. It died on the cross, and it died in Holy Saturday. There were other first century messiahs, would-be messiahs, who had big followings, said they were the king who's going to fix everything, and they also died on the cross. And they were on it. And you don't know their names. I know a handful of their names. But you don't know their names because they're just weird Jewish people from the first century. That's what would have happened to Jesus if he stayed in the cross, if he stayed in the tomb, if he stayed dead. Right? You would not know his name. The movement would have been dead, far dead, right then and there. And only a few geeky academic historians like me, might know of his name and kind of chuckle at the teachings and the ministry and the promises. Instead, Christ resurrected. Christian faith begins with the resurrection. And it looks back and interprets the cross through the lens of the resurrection, interprets his life through the lens of the resurrection, and then goes forward and interprets the future and what we can anticipate and hope for through the resurrection. The resurrection is the, the centerpiece of our faith. And if we're doing Christianity right, I think we're, we're living and thinking and believing in such a way that Jesus' resurrection forms the core identity of who we are and why we exist. I'm one of God's chosen people. My sin and my death have been defeated 2,000 years ago. And why I exist? I have a vocation that swallows up any other job I might take in my life, any other career path that I might have. The job is to go and make disciples. It's an interesting thing that on Sunday we come to worship. And then on a certain Sunday in the year, we come to celebrate the resurrection. 
you know, the, the early Jews, the first century Jews, celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday. And Christians changed it to Sunday. Now, here's what we know about the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, they thought it was so serious that you had to do it on Saturday that it was a punishment by death kind of crime. So there's, we get stories of a guy picking up a stick and falling over dead. Now, to, to me, at least, and hopefully maybe to some of you, that sounds absurd. I'm like, what if, you know, what if he was poor and he had to do a little bit on Saturday? Or what if his schedule got messed up and so he's just going to do it on Sunday but and work on, on Saturday? And I'm reminded of a, a book I read recently that said um, one of the, the shifts that took place when modernity came about, 17, 1800s, um, is that we lost a sense of what's called ontology, which is the, the study of being or existing. Um, in the medieval and ancient times, they thought that everything had an ontology. It, ex- it really existed in some way. And because it really existed, some parts of reality could have existed as more important than other parts. Like it was heavier. Like it made a dent And this explains so much of the weird Old Testament or ancient stuff that we kind of think, you know, what in the world? So the Sabbath, right? I'm like, I don't understand how God killed that man or or why he deserved to die. But to the ancient people, they thought Saturday was the day God made holy. It now had a greater existence. It weighed more. All the other days rotated around it. It wasn't that God was unwilling to make a compromise or to see someone else. It was that it was something you can't undo. It was something you can't change. You literally can't do it on Sunday, and you can't do it on Friday, because it's a Sabbath, it's a Saturday that has this weight to it. And think about, like, space. We tend to, as moderns, again, think of space as all the same. So space is space. It can be used for multiple things. We could get rid of, in 15 minutes, with 10 volunteers, we can make this a um, little children's auditorium for preschool. Um, space is whatever we use it for, right? But we get these Old Testament stories where... They believe that a space is sacred. Like so sacred, if you go in there, not prepared, you die. And we think, what in the world? It's just a place like any other place. And they have to perform all these ritual purity acts. Well, the reason that makes sense to them is because they actually believe that space had been made holy. It now had greater existence. It weighed something. You couldn't get somewhere else what you could get in that space. And so, so the early Christians do this remarkable thing, especially because of the, the Sabbath. Um, knowing how many people have been killed for breaking the Sabbath, they start meeting on Sundays. A tradition that still goes today. 
And the reason I did was because it's a uh, weekly reminder that he's risen. He's risen For Christians, Sunday has a greater weight to it. And particularly Easter, that, that one day we choose to focus solely on the resurrection um, in the Christian calendar, it's, it's got this weight around it that makes every other day in the year rotate around it. It's powerful. It's real. And in fact, I think it's noticeable that we have some sense of ontology because on Easter, just about most people, I, I would guess, in our context go, I wonder if there's a church I can go to probably should go to church. It is Easter, right? You'd only say that if you thought that this day was somehow different from any other day. The resurrection was so central to their lives. They reorganized their key beliefs around it. They changed their day of worship. It was central to their faith. And they became resurrection people. Jesus was a resurrection person. And they became, were called to be, resurrection people. So on, on this morning, as we think about and dwell on the resurrection, and what it means and implies, and, and, and the good news that it is for you and I, I pray that you would not think of or see the resurrection as another normal event or as a story you've heard dozens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times. This is why Christians practice Holy Week, like I said. New eyes. We want to experience resurrection like they did, with fear and astonishment and worship It's good news. It changes everything. And you and I are called to be a part of it. There's not much that's better than that. Jesus resurrected from the dead so that you and I might have life in him and might share that life with other people. And so one last time, loud and proud, we say it with Christians all around the world this morning. And we say it also with Christians all throughout history. We're one community, trans, trans time, transnational, transnational, anywhere, everywhere. This morning, the church is proclaiming this. And so we proclaim it enthusiastically. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Will you pray with me? Father, we again thank you for this morning of worship. I pray that you would create in us an excitement and wonder about your resurrection. Uh, I pray that you would allow uh, the truth of your resurrection to penetrate our lives and our identities and minds and hearts and souls. I pray that um, for those of us who aren't currently experiencing this new life that's available in Christ, 
that you would send your spirit and help them or send a friend to help walk along the way with them. And for those of us who are experiencing this life, I pray that you would create in us a new sense of urgency to go after it more and and then to share it with the people (coughs) around us. Not because of some threat, but because we believe every day not in relationship with Christ is a shadow life. It's a day of darkness when it could be a day of light. Father, I ask that you would raise our eyes and hearts up to your Son this morning at your right hand. As he prays for us, we pray to you a prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of praise. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and his life and his ministry and his teachings, his death and his resurrection and his ascension to your right hand where he rules now and prays for us. And we thank you for the spirit that you have poured out through him who comes to remind us about Jesus' teachings and to convict us of sin in our lives and who gives us the power to be able to transform and live obedient and faithful lives full of real life. We have thanks for all of this and more this morning. And we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.